Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. Today, the reading is taken from James chapter 2, and we're starting at verses 14 through to 26. Suppose a person claims to have faith, but doesn't act on their faith. My brothers and sisters, can this kind of faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister has no clothes or food. Suppose one of you says to them, go, I hope everything turns out fine for you. Keep warm, eat well. And suppose you do nothing about what they really need. Then what good have you done? It is the same with faith. If it doesn't cause us to do something, it's dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Our father Abraham offered his son Isaac on the altar. Wasn't he considered to be right with God because of what he did? You see that what he believed and what he did were working together. What he did made his faith complete. That is what scripture means where it says Abraham believed God. God accepted Abraham because he believed. So his faith made him right with God. That's not all. God called Abraham his friend. So you see that a person is considered right with God by what they do. It doesn't happen only because of what they believe. Didn't God consider even Rahab the prostitute to be right with him? That's because of what she did for the spies. She gave them a place to stay. Then she sent them off in a different direction. A person's body without their spirit is dead. In the same way, faith without good deeds is dead. Hey everybody, great to see you. I am so excited to be able to join with you today in the church that meets in your house. Um, Thanks for connecting with us in this way and um, maybe some of you have connected to Ivy because of this thing that we did called today Um, just a couple of days ago on Friday we went for 24 hours right around the clock broadcasting stories of life change and also of people um, who were like speakers talking about how Jesus has changed their life and how he can change yours too. This was like um, a crazy idea that came from one of our elders, Rob Varner, who contacted me off the kind of bed of COVIDness and said he'd been praying. And he really felt God was saying, you've got a few weeks, three weeks, in which there's going to be a time for you to step out and do like a harvest thing that's going to try and pull people in and like don't miss the opportunity. So I was praying about that, which we could have stopped at just praying about it or started to do something about it. And we're going to look at this, uh, how faith isn't just about thinking, oh, yeah, that's interesting. It is actually doing something, because unless we do something, it doesn't get done. And so I just began to contact a few people, start the ball rolling. And, you know, it was, it was hard work for the team. There's lots of people who work really hard to be able to put this on. But the results are quite amazing. We, we don't know the results until we get to heaven. We don't know how many people have heard the gospel, have heard the good news, and then said, actually, yeah, I want to respond to that. Uh, for sure. We don't know how many are going to. Even now people are going on again and still clicking and looking back over those videos. But let me give you some of the numbers. These are as I've got them and we'll probably brush them up a bit more. But these are the ones I had earlier that we had 250,000 
post reaches. That means that this went, re we reached out to 250,000 people in different ways. Over 125,000 video views. Wow. Now this is Facebook. Now, some people will say, ah, but Facebook count anything over three seconds as a view. And they'll kind of disparage you a little bit and say, you know, if people just come on and go back off again, it still counts as a view, which is true. We don't know how many of these people were actually staying with it and sticking with it for any time. But we do know there were hundreds of watch parties where people went on and shared with their friends. There were hundreds of people, many of you, sharing those with their friends and family. So it kind of goes out beyond this reach. And actually today encouraged many people to not only look at them and go, wow, it's great that they're sharing their story, but to also go on and share their own story and tell their friends and their family quite boldly, here's the difference Jesus has made in my life. And then to nominate a few other people, that to me, I've got to say, has been the best thing about today has been to see all these people from our church. And then that's kind of jumped to other churches too, as people are challenging other people. And now this is going around and people are sharing more and more of their stories. And we're hearing about people who are connecting to those stories and passing them on and passing them on so that a friend tells a neighbor and, and stuff like that's happening. We've had people who are wanting to get involved with church, sign up for alpha courses, not off the today thing itself, but off those stories. Because you know what, your, your story is very powerful because it's so personal to other people. Now, my big prayer for the event was that we'd be able to engage people long enough that there'd be some meaningful connection with them, that maybe they'd hear the full story of somebody. And or even better for me, if they could hear like a, somebody preaching and telling them what, what Christians believe and the difference that it makes for them. You know, roughly about 20 minutes, just under 20 minutes. That's why we kept it on this loop of keeping it going like that so that people would be able to do it. Now, this YouTube are a lot more um, kind of uh, sticky in terms of what they count as views than Facebook. So it's interesting to look at uh, YouTube as well as at Facebook. And um, they're pickier, if you see. They, they don't re just register a quick click. You've got to have actually an individual has to logically sequentially watch by pressing and then watching for over 30 seconds before it will count as a view. Now, um, and the lights on repeats too, so you can't you get less individual views. Now, while we were watching the YouTube channel, we had some people coming on and say, no, there's not many on here. It doesn't look like there's many coming on here. And at different times, it went up and down. But at the end, however, we saw we had up to 400 watching at any one time online. And there were 8,300 video playbacks. 5,000 individual people watching those videos with an average watch time of 16 minutes. That's what it came up at the end of 16 minutes. I'm going to take that as an answer to prayer. Just think about all those thousands of people watching and listening and engaging with the stories of Jesus and doing, this is the next break, not just they'll hear it, but that they'll do something about it. So why don't you get your Bible and open it to James chapter 2, verse 14 to 26, to make so much more sense and easier for you to follow along what I'm teaching, what I'm talking to us about. If you get your Bible open, you can get that Bible app for free, you version, James 2, 14 to, 16, to 26, so right to the end of the passage. This is from this study we've been doing in the book of James. Now, in 1973, two social psychologists at Princeton University did a very famous experiment that they called the Good Samaritan Experiment. They were intrigued by the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told, a very famous story, and how it was that there would be two religious people, that there would be a priest and a Levite, who would walk right past this, this, the person in need, and actually it was somebody else, the Samaritan, who crossed the road and went and got involved. 
And, and then they, they kind of thought, what is it that help makes people help? And what is it that stops people helping? Well, one of the factors they thought was maybe the priest and the Levite, they were like in a, in a rush to the temple. So maybe hurrying is one of the factors that stops us from helping people. So they wanted to measure that. But they also thought, well, what's the effect of, of thinking about God and religious teachings? Does that actually make a big difference in terms of whether or not people go and help? And so what they did, they got some seminary students who were training there. And they brought them in and they got them to sit down and they were told, as individuals, you've got to prepare a talk, a three to five minute talk. Uh, and, and one group were told, your talk is about what you think ministers do. It was just in terms of the practical day to day things that the, uh, somebody who's working for a church might do. The other group, the other half were told the story of the Good Samaritan. They were shown that and they were said, you've got to weave this story into your talk. So, as, so in other words, as well as just thinking about the practical things that ministry involves, they also had to think about the story that Jesus told while they were preparing their talk. So they were really weaving it into their own heads and into their own hearts, you would think, while they were doing this. And then after they had been working on their talk for a while, an assistant would come in and say to them, well, one of two things. They'd either say, um, no rush, but they're kind of ready for you. You can go over finish up soon so you can go over. In other words, no hurry at all. The other group were told, um, they're expecting you now, actually a few minutes ago, if you wouldn't mind finishing now and getting over there quick. In other words, hurry up. So they were gauging the, the hurry factor in that. Now, along the way from, the, we're given a map of where to go in the campus, and along the way to, um, the, to the, the, the place where they're supposed to give a speech, they had an actor, they'd staged an incident, they called it. This actor was sitting down, slumped in a doorway, kind of moaning and groaning, uh, all slumped over, eyes closed, not really moving, and looking like they needed help. And the actor would even cough as the people came past a little bit to try and get their attention. And each time one of the participants would pass the victim, the victim, the actor there would gauge their response and give them a score, which they tossed up later, from kind of zero to six in terms of how helpful they were. Um, Right at the bottom score was basically somebody totally failed to even register that the person was there needed help at all. Six was that after stopping, they refused to leave the victim and insisted that help was got. And uh, so they had this sliding scale that, that they were marked on. Now, it's, it's no surprise to me, probably not to you, hurrying hindered helpfulness. The people who were in a rush um, were far less likely to stop than the people who were told you, there's no rush for you to be able to get over and give you a talk. So people um, concerned about being late, however, didn't even notice or often failed to give any help. They just rushed on by. But that, they also wanted to study something else. It, was, it really mattered whether some of the students were, but does it matter that they were thinking about the Bible and thinking about the teaching of the Bible and actually that they were going to in some way incorporate the teaching of the Bible, the religious virtue, if you like, of helping other people. Here's what they found. It didn't matter at all. It made no difference whatsoever. Students on the way to give a talk about the Good Samaritan Theological students on the way to give this talk were no more likely to give help than students who were just going to go and talk about the practicalities of ministry as they perceived it. 
Even if you would have thought, even if you would have expected that it would have made a difference, there's no evidence, it says, from the study that any difference was made whatsoever in terms of pr the practical experience of helpfulness between the two groups. In fact, they noted that on several occasions, seminary students going to give a talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan literally stepped over the victim on their way to give the talk. Now, as we've seen already, we've been looking at this Bible's book of James, and I encourage you to have it open. James pulls no punches. In chapter one, we're told, James one verse 22, do not merely listen, listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. Now, scholars agree, James is the most Jewish book in the New Testament. And this, this statement highlights a clash of cultures, the difference between Hebrew and Greek thinking. Remember, James is a Jew. He's writing to scattered Jewish Christ followers. It hasn't become a Gentiles haven't got involved yet, but they've been scattered out into the world of Gentiles in a time when Rome ruled the world. And they were very much a Greek thinking uh, you know, Plato, Socrates shaped their thinking. And that is the mindset that still prevails intellectually and in every way in the West today. So here in the 21st century West, our philosophy, our thinking has been shaped by Plato and Aristotle much more than by Jesus and the Bible. That's why we need to have our minds renewed by the word of God and by the spirit in order to be able to think and live biblically. So James says, don't just listen. Don't think that that's what matters. Do. Now, the Hebrew word for listen, shema, is very important for Jews. Every day they pray over and over. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, shema, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. See, they have this view that God was one God, that there were, not, not like the Greeks, this pantheon of gods, and man was at the center no, they said that God was at the center of the universe. There's one God at the center of everything. And you have to listen to him. And, li and that word listen also is connected to the word obey. It's like, it's not just listen, it's but obey. It means actually that and so much more. The Greek word for listen just means notice a sound. That's all it means. But the Hebrew meaning for listen is so much deeper than that. The, the Hebrew word, is, is what Jesus says so often when he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, pay full attention. See, if you're going to have ears to hear, that means you would pay full attention to what was being said and you would incorporate it into your life as if your life depended on it. Is that how you're thinking about this teaching right now? Not because I'm a, some great teacher, but because the Bible is, is the word, the living word of God. See, the idea is that you would want to incorporate it and bring it fully into your life and that you would adapt every thought, that you would let it shape your life and your speech and your heart and your conduct because of what you'd heard, that you would memorize it that you would teach it to your children as you walked along the way in life, that you would live it out in the world around you. You see, for Greeks, sight is the most important sense. For Hebrews, hearing is the most important sight. Greek thought taught for the sake of knowledge. Hebrew thought was all about wisdom. Which would you rather have, knowledge 
or wisdom. We teach, don't we, for our children to have knowledge. But what about wisdom? How much different would the world be? Western thought wants to break it all down into categories in order to be able to understand it. Hebrew thinking wants to bring it all together so that I can live it out. Greek thought divides and dissects everything into categories, either or. Hebrew thinking is both and. The Greek ideal is individuals in competition, the Olympic spirit. The Hebrew is community in cooperation. You see the difference? Greek and Western thought means you're important because of what belongs to you. Hebrew thinking says you're important because you belong, because you're in a family. Greek splits up natural and supernatural, divine and profane, sacred and secular. For, for the Hebrew just says it's all supernatural. It's all about God. For the Greeks, truth is something out there for me to try and reach out and to discover. It's something that you uncover bottom up. By, by philosophy and figuring it out and by science. For Hebrews, truth is top down. It's revelation from the God who made the universe that he would reveal these things to our hearts. And we don't decide what, that, what is truth. We discover what is truth. Greek thinking says, I know it because now I understand it. I have learned it. I've done the course. I've got the qualification. Hebrew thinking says, I know it because I am living it. I am living it out. See the difference? Do not be deceived. Do not be a hearer alone and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Now, from that, that's, I hope that'll help as I read again now from what James wrote, this time in the message version in James chapter two, verse 14 to 16, 17 in the message. Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come upon one dressed in rags and half-starved and say, Good morning, friend. That was a normal Jewish greeting. Be clothed in Christ. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup. Where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense. See, to the Hebrew mindset, you can't have God talk without God acts. You can't just have it coming out of your lips, but not coming out from your life. It's like no way they could even get their heads around that. The two are one. Remember when Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment out of all the commandments? What did he say? Love God and love your neighbor. It's like the two are together. They're one. But God talk without God acts is nonsense. Next, James is going to say what somebody else will say. If you read down in the passage and look at it yourself, he says, well, somebody else is going to say, well, I do good works, but I'm not a believer. Uh, but that's okay, isn't it? I'm a good person. And he says, no, it's not either or. Stop thinking either or. It's both and works and faith working together that's all that works next somebody else says yeah but 
I don't need to do any works, any good works, because I'm just saved by faith. I just, I'm just a believer, and so I don't need to do any good works. I became a Christian, and I prayed the prayer. 1985, Billy Graham. I can still remember when it took place. Glory to God. You know, people can do all of that, and it's like, so James would say, well, really, you can have something in your head that doesn't change your heart and how you live out, and you're calling that faith. It's not faith. It's not true faith. It's fake. It's fake faith. He says, so you're saying you believe in God, do you? Well, listen, even demons believe in God. Are you on their side? Even demons say, they, and they tremble. They, I mean, at least, they, at least they, they have the fear of God. Do we have the fear of God? See, does, does, what, what, what good does knowing do unless I'm actually doing something about what I say that I know? Now, of course, we can never earn salvation by our own good deeds. If we could, it wouldn't have taken Jesus Christ, God's son, to come down to earth and live a perfect life and die in our place upon the cross for us to be able to receive that salvation as a free gift of grace from him. So that's not James's point. Remember, say it, say it out loud where you are. It's not either or. No, it's not either or, it's both and See, Martin Luther, the guy who kicked off the Reformation, he flipped out over the book of James. He called it an epistle of straw. The reason was he couldn't, he couldn't tie this up together with what he knew was, was true, which was what the Apostle Paul talked about, about it's all about grace and it's all about faith. And it's like, no, we're not, saved, we're, not, we're not being saved by our works. And he was kind of going against the teaching of the day that said, you've just got to do the works. And, and he was like saying, no, no, it's all about faith. But you know why he was so bent out of shape by all of that? It's because he was a Greek thinker, because he was a Western thinker, because for him it was either or. And James would say, no, 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 it's both and. And Paul, who wrote Romans and all of that stuff, he would say, no, it's both and. Because he was Jewish too. See, that's why Luther missed out, because he was a Western-schooled scholar, and he was in categories, and he had to put it into one or the other. But James and Paul would both say, no, faith and work, working together. And as we continue through the book of James, you're going to see time and time again that becoming abundantly clear. He's not saying you'd better do good works or, uh, or else you, know, you won't be able to be saved. No, he's not saying that. At the same time, he, actually what he is saying is, if, if you truly believe, it will show. It will show what you believe by how you live out your life, your faith. You live out your faith. You don't just have it in your head. And he, it, see, he's not saying if you do good deeds, then you'll be saved. That's not, that's not what he's saying either. He's going the other way. He's saying if you've been saved, then you will do good works because faith without works won't work. It's dead. It's dead faith. That's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. There's a test. Have you tested your faith? What's the true test of your faith? It's love. Love is the true test of faith. James says it, how you love your brothers and sisters is the test. And who are they? 
it's the church. See, just before this, he's talked about the poor and we have responsibilities to the poor, but he doesn't necessarily call the poor brothers and sisters. He always talks about brothers and sisters as being the church, the church family. James writes about brothers and sisters specifically 11 times in, the, in this short uh, book that we're looking at. He's always, he's talking about the church. He's talking about the family of God. It's like now he sees the church as being this great big family, the family of God. And it's not like, it's not, no, it's not like it's a family. It's, it is, it is the family of God. It's deeper, it's stronger even than, than physical bodies. Because you see, you know, people talk a lot about Jesus, about, about people re redefining the family. But before anybody did any of that, Jesus did it already. See, remember, James's flesh and blood brother was who? Jesus. Joseph is James's dad. So Jesus is his half brother. And he had other brothers and sisters too. But one time, Jesus was teaching in a house with his disciples. We read about this in Matthew chapter 12. It says, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Somebody said to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside and they want to speak to you. This is, listen to what Jesus said. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and my mother. See, that's Jesus blowing up the nuclear family right there and starting all over with the family called the church. So now James and these early Christians really saw church as their family, as this, their primary place of belonging. You see, belonging was everything to the Hebrews. And the early church ended up, they were slandered. They were accused of, of all, they were accused of incest. They were accused of outsiders' looks and, and they heard them talking about being brothers and sisters and loving one another. They even heard them having love feasts together. Then when they started talking about eating bodies and drinking blood, persecution really ramped up across the empire because they didn't understand. This was talking about communion that Jesus encouraged us to, to never forget to do. So whatever family looked like before, whatever your family has looked like in the past, God, Jesus has made all things new. God the Father wanted a family, so he sent his son to go and get one so that we would be part of it and that you would be part of the family of God. When we do what God the Father says and when we follow Jesus Christ, if you became a believer, I became your brother. If you have ever become a believer, I've become your brother. You become my brother or my sister. And I want to invite you to consider and pray about something very important today, about whether God is calling you to become part, a member of this church that we call Ivy. Because next week, we're going to be receiving new people into membership and ask those who are members already to recommit to this church family. Now, that's not something to just sign up to without thinking about it. It's not like kind of you know, clicking a, a thing to say, yeah, I'll subscribe to some um, you know, email letter or something. Not everybody should do this. Even though we're doing it online and you'll see a link coming up, uh, there are terms and conditions, if I can say it like that, with regard to you applying to become a member of Ivy Church. There's requirements on you. The first requirement is you must have accepted Jesus Christ and said, I want him to be the saviour 
and the Lord of my life. That's number one. Then you're also going to affirm that you share our vision and our values. We have uh, articles of faith as a church. That's not saying everybody in the church believes them all. What it's saying is the staff team do, the elders do, that we actually believe this stuff is true. We invite you to explore them with us. But, you've, you, but you need to know what we believe because that's what we're going to teach. We're going to teach like the Bible really is the word of God and we are, um, that we should be bringing our lives into obedience with that. And we also commit to this process of discipleship that we call knowing, growing, going. Let me break that down. See, as Christians, we believe we are stretched three ways to grow. Knowing means you commit to regularly worship God with us as he's revealed himself in scripture and obey him. Growing means that we commit to one another. We, you join a grow group. You pray for the growth of the church. You invest in relationships. You invite people to come along and engage with us. You also protect the church. You refuse to gossip. You forgive. You help to heal broken relationships. You honor the leaders as we seek to honor you too. Going means as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you obey his commandment to go and make more disciples. You share in our ministry, like so many people have just done by putting their, their stories out online so courageously. It doesn't involve having to do that, but in various ways, it's, it's living a holy life as best you can and sharing your life with other people too. And if, if, if you have a problem at any point, is that you will pray. And that if you've got an issue or a question, you come and talk to us first about it, rather than talking to other people and bringing your moans and your criticisms. Come into the person or the people directly involved rather than engaging in gossip so that we can be a healthy family so that then we can go together and invite more people into that family too so bef before you become a member of the church here at ivy remember you're saying i'm going to i'm going to become part of the family of god we'll accept you as you are we, we ask you to accept us as we are warts and all nobody's perfect but all things are possible and everybody's welcome in this family and you're not coming to a restaurant to be served but you're coming to a family meal to get involved see when you become a christian you become part of the big wide worldwide church of god the the, the christian the like the the, the the christian church but you choose to join a specific church family and we're going to invite next week people to do that but also if you are a member here i'm going to challenge you to stand together and we're going to pray to recommit to becoming part of this to be in this church too and to be part of this so if this week you pray and you decide that you want to become a member at ivy if you've been coming long enough to get to know us and to know some people you're going to need to be um, proposed by one of the leaders you're going to need to have that uh, also ratified by a staff member a site leader or an elder and uh, and none of this has to wait until we can meet together physically to do it by the way you can become a member because whatever happens in the future we're going to do some stuff online because we can't go back in the box now so if you're in online next Sunday and you're going you're to be part of us doing this, we're going to ask, as I say, existing members to reaffirm that they belong here too. And, and we have these different forces, you see, that will pull us apart as a church right now. Centrifugal forces, you could think of all that are going to pull us apart. But we need to have centripetal forces that, that pull us together. Centripetal, I can't even say it. Pull us together and keep us together. And we believe membership is one of them. We're also going to be voting on the wonderful Gemma Tucson to become an elder here because there are some things that only members get to do. And there's legal things to do with that as becoming part of, of this company, this charity. But that's not the most important part when you realize we're family. And James says you're going to know when you belong to Jesus because 
you've got faith that works. He tells two stories about what that looks like. I've just realized that my battery is running out on my computer. So if I, if I go, um, then that's the end of that. I've not plugged it in, but we, uh, we pray, pray for power. He says, go back to the, uh, the father of faith, an old man called Abraham. He prayed and he waited and he hoped for a son. He's a hundred years of age when all his life he's been waiting, along comes Isaac. Imagine Captain Tom pushing a pram. And then one day God says to him, now here's the test. Take him up to the top of the mountain and sacrifice. Now, he, he could just think, well, actually, I'll ponder that and I'll think about that. And Lord, I'll, you know, I'll really wonder about that. But you know what faith has to do? Faith has to get his boots on and climb up the mountain. And halfway up the mountain with his son, he, Isaac looks at him and says, Dad, we've got the wood. And uh, I can see you've got a big knife there. But where's the sacrifice? And then Abraham looks at him and says, God himself will provide. That's what faith says. God will provide. That's what faith is all about. Martin Luther said this was blind faith. Seren Kierkegaard said it was a leap of faith in the dark, but actually it wasn't. You see, this was a leap into the known, into who he knew God really was. It's like that film years ago, Indiana Jones, if you've seen it, he has to cross over this bridge and he can't see a way across. And it says that faith is the way you do it. And he has to do this and put his hands over his eyes and step out. And when he steps out, it's there. And people say that's what faith looks like. No, 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 it's not the case. Because actually this was a reasonable faith. He knew God. He knew actually Isaac was a miracle in the first place. In the book of Hebrews, it says this. It says, Hebrews 11 verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, he knew there was a promise. Abraham reasoned, say reasoned, reasoned that God could raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. See what faith is? It's reasonable. It's something that says to God, I trust you. I can't, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know how this is going to work. He didn't know that as he was walking up one side of the mountain, God was sending a ram up the other side of the mountain that he couldn't see, that would get it it's stuck in the thicket that would be the sacrifice. Sometimes we can only see from our side of the mountain and we can't figure out what God's doing. But faith says God will provide and I'm still going to trust you. And James's final story of faith comes from a woman who is an outsider, a prostitute an immoral woman by the name of Rahab. Read about her in the book of Joshua. She's a Canaanite living in the walled city of Jericho, but she's heard about the, these people who, who are coming, and how, they, how they came out of the Red Sea and uh, how God stopped, Yahweh stopped the, the Red Sea so they could walk across on dry land. And now they're just on the other side of the Jordan River and they send spies across and she finds out about these spies and she helps them and she hides them. And she says, please, will you rescue me? I've heard about your God and what he can do. Please, will you save me? I want to be saved. And they say, well, look, there's an act of faith you have to do. If you will tie a red cord around the window, then when everything else comes crashing down, you'll be saved. And she did it. And it happened that way. And she ended up, actually, she's in that same list of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 as a champion of hero of faith, the same as Abraham. And that she came into a new family, the family of God by faith. She married a Jewish man by the name of Salmon. They had a son called Boaz, who was the great, great grandmother of, of uh, sorry, who married Ruth, who was the great, great grandmother of David. But then Matthew's gospel tells us that Rahab was also, which the great, 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 well, I haven't got time to read them all, 
30 generations of great-grandmothers of a man called Joseph, Joseph, whose son was called Jesus of Nazareth, who was really actually the only begotten son of God. And here now today, telling us this story, telling us her story is one of her relatives, somebody from her family, another one of Joseph's sons, James, who look back in the family of God, the family album that you and me are invited to be into and saw lots of very interesting people with very interesting stories. But God wanted them in the family album like he wants you and me in it too. So let's pray and then we're going to worship together as one family, wherever you are. Lord, we thank you that you bring us into your family by faith. If you've never received that invitation, why don't you just say, yes, Lord, I want to be in that family of faith right now and pray and say, Lord, is it right? I should become part of this family at Ivy. It's part of that. It's not for everybody. Like I said, it's a deep, it's a holy commitment. It's a covenant that we make to love one another and serve one another and help one another no matter what. It's to be a faith that works. Lord, help us, Lord, to examine ourselves today and see if we are in the, felt, in the faith. We don't just want to be hearers of the word. We want to do what you say. So help us to look after one another as one family, your family. And thank you that we belong to you and you want us to belong together. Lord, just as you said, that faith without deeds is dead. So will you bring our faith alive in you. Right now we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, go to ivychurch.org/media.